remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, as we talk once again about being stewards of God's Gospel. And if you like, you can fill out, you can pull out the insert that's provided for you. Don't have one very often, but you can pull that out. Maybe that'll be helpful. It's really for the kids to help them follow along, but if it helps the adults, you can you can use it as well. This insert will relate to uh, Daniel too. Maybe give you a little visual when we get to that in a moment. Let me also remind you that at our fellowship feast after the service, which you're all invited to, we'll have a time of question and answer. Uh, so this morning is a good time to um, think about questions you might have. So if I say anything and you're thinking, boy, I'd really love to stop him and say, can you clarify that? Don't stop me, but you can ask for uh, clarification a little later. Um, so just keep that in mind. Okay, Mark 1. Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, or excuse me, before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to ask You to send Your Holy Spirit this morning to help us to see the Gospel of Your Kingdom. We assume that we know the Gospel but Father, I fear that perhaps we do not know the Gospel as well as we should. Father, this is not some tangential issue. This is the Gospel. So Father, please send Your Spirit so that we can leave here with a clear grasp of Your Gospel. The Gospel of Your Kingdom. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Why did Christ come into the world? That was the question we asked during this last Advent season. 
And we had many answers to that question. We said that he came to bring light into darkness based on Isaiah 9. Uh, We also said that he came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, He came to be a humble servant. And he literally served unto death, giving his life for us. He also came to give us life. came to give us eternal life. He gave came to give us abundant life. Another answer that we could have given to that question was he came to cast out the ruler of this world. And that's a reference to the devil. And that reference is also found in John 12.31. And we'll talk more about that next week as we talk about the relationship between the kingdom of God, Satan, and the cross. But this week, I want to focus on the answer Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He came to establish the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. And that kingdom was promised in many passages. But I want us to consider the promise of that kingdom that's found in Daniel 2. And this relates to your inserts. And I'd like to read from Daniel. You can follow along if you'd like to. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, if that helps. Go past those big books, mostly big. And Daniel has a lot to say um, about the coming kingdom in many chapters. Uh, Daniel 2, let me give you a little context while you're turning there. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream and he's asking his wise men and magicians to interpret the dream. Only he hasn't told them what the dream is. And if they don't tell them what the dream is and what the dream means, they are in trouble. And some of you kids might be wondering what kind of trouble. Uh, They will lose their lives. Daniel prays and God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And the interpretation has to do with the kingdom that exists at that time and then three other kingdoms that would come, and then the final kingdom that would come and would be established forever. Daniel chapter 2, let me pick it up at verse 31, and this is Daniel speaking. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. By the way, just as a side note, if you're familiar with the statement, feet of clay, it's another one of those biblical references. And here's where it comes from right here. Feet of clay. Verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I provided this little picture of the image for you uh, if you're a visual learner. By the way, I think that's why there's a lot of stories in the Bible as well so that you can picture what is taking place. But this is just uh, perhaps something 
of what the image may have looked like. Now we have the interpretation. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks it to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and shall bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now, regardless of your theological perspective, most theologians do agree that Nebuchadnezzar represents Babylon and then the silver represents the Medo-Persian kingdom that came after that. And then the Grecian kingdom or the Greece kingdom, the empire that came after that. And then the fourth kingdom represents Rome. Now, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, fascinatingly writes that in the first century, the Jews recognized this fourth kingdom as Rome. And as a result, and Josephus was a little coy about this because Rome was in power, they were waiting for the final kingdom to be established in their lifetime. This explains one reason why many people were accepting different messiahs that were coming at this time. Because prophecy had said that Rome would be the last kingdom and then God would establish His kingdom that would destroy all the other kingdoms and He would establish His kingdom forever. This also explains in part why many people came to see John the Baptist. In Mark 1.5 we read, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. One of the reasons why many people listened to John the Baptist, as he also said, One is coming after Me, 
He's mightier than I, and He's so great. I, I'm not even worthy to untie His sandals. And one of the reasons why people listened to John the Baptist because they were very attentive during this time that the Messiah was coming, that God was going to establish His kingdom. So their antennas were up and they were looking around, waiting eagerly for God to establish His kingdom. Now, as we said last week, the arrival of God's kingdom is nothing less than the Gospel. The arrival of the kingdom is the Gospel. And I asked this question last week and I want to ask it again this week because it really is a provocative question. What Gospel did Jesus preach? We don't have to guess because the answer is given in Mark 1, 14 and 15 as well as in other places. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel or the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. So he's telling them, yes, the time is fulfilled. The time for prophecy to be fulfilled has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's true. It is at hand. The time is about to be fulfilled. Therefore, repent and believe in the Gospel. John the Baptist gave the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is put in prison. Jesus now begins His public ministry and says the same thing. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news. Now, one of the reasons why the kingdom is at hand is because the King has finally come. Remember last week, we talked about Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. That's a prophecy from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And that is fulfilled in John the Baptist. So, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord. And what would the Lord do? And all we had to do was read along a little further in Isaiah 40 to find the answer. Verse 9, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, or gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Isaiah is preparing the way for Yahweh. Yahweh comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist says, Behold your God, and He has come to rule. This is what the Jews were waiting for. This is what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting the kingdom to come. And the kingdom does come. Now, they were thrown off because the kingdom didn't come as they thought it would come. And we'll talk about that a little later. But the kingdom is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, verse 7, I mentioned that John the Baptist is preparing the way for Christ. And he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, you have to put yourself in the sandals of the first century Jews. A prophet has come and he says, I baptize you with water for the forgiveness of sins, but right behind me, and I'm preparing the way for him, right, right behind me is coming one who is so great, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, and he's so great, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is going to baptize you with the third person of the Trinity. Now, when they heard that, what would they have thought of? One of the things that they would have thought of is this person is going to inaugurate not only the kingdom, but also the new covenant. Because one of the promises of the new covenant is that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Not just a few prophets or a few priests or a few kings, but He's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. In Ezekiel 36, one of the places that talks about the new covenant, we read this, verse 25, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the new covenant. God says the day is coming. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to cleanse you from all your sin, all your idolatry, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. And here John the Baptist is saying one's coming. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. And I'm saying this because we have to see the flow of Scripture. What's happening with Jesus? It's not a new thing. It's not as though all of a sudden something new is happening. What's happening is fulfillment. Everything that God has promised in the Old Testament is now coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. All these great promises. And we could talk about all these great promises for months on end. But I want you to see here that they're being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The time has come. The fulfillment is taking place. And it's taking place because the King has come and the Kingdom has come. Now let me remind you again that the word Christ means anointed one. That's what it means. Anointed one. And as we said last week, uh, prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. But predominantly, when the Old Testament talks about the Anointed One, it is talking about the kings. And this is a little simplistic, but the best synonym for Christ is King. Let me give you just a couple of references to help you with this. Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 has many references in the New Testament. The early church clearly saw this fulfilled in Christ. Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against His anointed Messiah. In the New Testament, it's Christ. And the early church saw this as a conspiracy against Christ to put Him to death. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. So the anointed is the King and God sets His anointed on the throne. Christ means the anointed one and the anointed one is the King. Now this is important so that when you read through the book of Acts, and you can turn there if you like, Acts 5, If you understand what's meant in that term Christ very specifically, I want you to see that it refers to Christ as the King. And I'm emphasizing this because I believe most people think that Christ is a synonym for Savior. And I don't deny that that's included in the term, but we need to see that it's the King who is the Savior. The Anointed One, the King who has come to save us. Acts 5.29 Tell you what, I got the wrong verse down here, so skip that one. Go to Acts 18.5. It's okay. I have more than one. <laughs> I don't want to take the time to find the, the verse. Acts 18.5 when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In other words, that the King was Jesus. And if you can see that Christ means King, then you can see that all these references to Christ, relate to Him as the King. 18.28 They're continuing on preaching. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ, that the King, was Jesus. Showing that the Anointed One, promised in passages like Psalm 2, was Jesus. Jesus is that anointed one whom the Father has placed on the throne in Zion as His King. And I'm emphasizing this because if you can see that all these passages referring to Jesus as the Christ means He's the King, then you can see that there's a lot more talk in the Bible about the kingdom than you previously thought. Now, when was Jesus anointed? Think of that in your head, an answer. When was Jesus anointed? Before I give you the answer, let me read from 1 Samuel 16.13 that describes the anointing of David. Then Samuel took the, her, or excuse me, took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So here's the prophet Samuel. He's coming to David, anointing him, 
king as the Lord told him to do. And as soon as he's anointed with the oil, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. When was Jesus anointed? At his baptism, absolutely. So look at Mark 1 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's very important. At the baptism of Jesus, when he was about 30 years old, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now he's anointed by the Spirit for ministry, for preaching, for ministry, and now his ministry begins. You might be wondering, why did he, why did he wait till he was 30 to begin his ministry? Because he wasn't anointed yet. Now that he's anointed, his ministry begins and he goes forth. And again, let me remind you, in 14 and 15, this is Jesus' very first sermon, His very first words. He picks up where John the Baptist has left off and He announces that indeed the time has come. The kingdom of God is fulfilled. It is at hand. It's time for the kingdom to be established. It's time for the suffering servant to take upon himself the sins of all the people. It's time for the king to set the captives free. It's time to bring an end to the exile of God's people. And it is time for God to visit His people as He promised and to reign over them. The time is fulfilled. Now, do any other passages talk about the arrival of the King. There are many passages. Let me give you just a couple more. Matthew 12. And while you're turning there, let me just say that there's a lot related to the Kingdom. There's different views of the Kingdom, the growth of the Kingdom, um, how it, what it looks like, how it's established. But I want you to see very clearly, I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind when you leave this morning that Jesus did indeed in the first century bring in the kingdom of God. Matthew twelve twenty two. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So man's demon possessed as a result, um, he's, he's mute, he can't speak, and he's blind. Jesus heals him. Verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Now, why do they say, Can this be the Son of David? Who was the Son of David? The Anointed One. Thank you, Norbert. Exactly. The One who would come from the line of David and sit upon His throne forever. And they ask that because He's healing a man, because He's binding the devils, if you will. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they didn't like hearing that, 
They said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In other words, by Satan himself, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Three quick observations. Number one, Jesus says, if I drive out the demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom has indeed come. And notice what the kingdom is doing. It is setting the captives free and it is crumbling Satan's kingdom. Continuing on in verse 29, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. People have been in bondage. What is Jesus doing? He's binding the strong man. He's plundering his house. He's setting the captives free so that now they can see, now they can speak, now they can walk. Why is all this happening? Because the kingdom is coming and Jesus is overthrowing Satan's kingdom. And we'll talk about that more next week. But the kingdom has Come, turn to Mark 9.1. Mark 9.1. Jesus speaks to His disciples. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. In other words, He's talking to His disciples. There's some standing right here. Remember, this is the first century context. Some of you guys standing right here are not going to taste death. In other words, some of you standing right here will not die. You will be alive. For what purpose? To see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Not only will they see the kingdom come, but they will see the kingdom come with power. In the first century, because Jesus is bringing the kingdom. Now, what does this refer to? I'll give you three common interpretations. Some think that it refers to the transfiguration that takes place six days later. I don't think so. R.C. Sproul, I think, made a good observation when he said, it sure seems like an odd thing to say. Some of you guys aren't going to die within the next six days. <laughs> um, I think the time frame is a little longer. Some say that it refers to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And that is a possibility. Um, but I think the best answer, Sproul thinks this, and I'm not going to get into all the details now, but I think the best answer is given that some are still going to be alive in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed as a sign of the enthronement of Christ. 
But I don't want to get into that right now. What I want you to see right now is that the kingdom comes and it comes with power in the first century during the lifetime of the apostles. The time is fulfilled. Jesus did, in fact, bring in the kingdom. Now, there are some objections that are raised at this point. Let me address three of what I think are the most common objections. Uh, Objection number one, Christ preached about the kingdom, but the disciples preached a different gospel because when the Jews rejected the kingdom, the kingdom was delayed. Have any of you heard that? Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Let me, first of all, say that He did. And we can give some other references to that as well. I want you to give give you a couple more just so it's real clear about what Jesus preached. Luke 4.43 Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 8.1 We have another reference. Soon afterward, Jesus went throughout the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's very clear that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Matthew 21 Now, this passage tells us that yes, the Jews did, by and large, reject Christ, reject the kingdom, but it makes it very clear that Jesus didn't say, okay, if you're not going to accept the kingdom, then I'll withdraw my offer and I'll bring it later. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus makes it very clear if you're going to reject the kingdom, the kingdom's still coming, but it's going to be given to others. That's what Jesus says. Matthew 21, I'll start at verse 42. Then Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was talking about them. They understood very clearly. He's talking about them. The kingdom's going to be taken away from them and it's going to be given to others who will bear its fruit. Jesus is not withdrawing the kingdom. He's giving it to other people. But let's also address this whole issue of what the disciples preached. Did they preach salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Did they preach that you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? Absolutely. Did they also preach as a whole gospel, if you will, that the kingdom is coming? They sure did. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out His disciples. 
verse 5, we read, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but enter and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The gospel of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out the demons. Preach the gospel as at hand and also show manifestations of the coming of the kingdom by casting out demons and bringing about healing. In Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24:14, Jesus tells His disciples, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come not going to get into it here. I don't think this is the end of the world. I think this is the end of the Jewish age, the end of the Old Covenant. But notice that he says this gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed to all the nations. And then sure enough, when you turn to the book of Acts, when you see what's happening in the early church, you see this gospel going forth. Acts 1.3, Jesus is talking to His disciples for 40 days before He ascends into heaven. And then in Acts 19.8, we have a reference to this kingdom. Paul enters the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, verse 25 he ministers in Ephesus, and just before he leaves, he says in Acts 20:25, 20, "And now behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again." So he says, "I've been going about proclaiming the kingdom." And then Acts 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, we read in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning to evening. He expounded, talking about Paul, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And then the very last verse of the book of Acts. Here's where it ends. Talking about Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to Him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The last we see of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is the Lord, and you have to see that this is dripping with irony because where is Paul? He's in Rome. And some, we're told by the other epistles, in Caesar's household. Who is Caesar? Caesar was the king. Caesar was the one that the people had to confess that was Lord. But now they're confessing that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord. And Paul is proclaiming the kingdom. The kingdom has come and they are confessing that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords now. Not sometime in the future. We can't wait for that to happen. Now, He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
That is his position, his title, right now. So it's very clear that this message continued on in the early church. Objection number two, and maybe this is even more common, at least from what I've heard, people say, you know what? I look around the world and it really doesn't look like Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the world. Just look at what a mess things are in. Well, you need to know when this is raised, first of all, it has nothing to do with Scripture, but you need to know that when this question is raised, there's a huge assumption underlying this question. And the assumption is that when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to come suddenly and it's going to transform the whole world just like that. That's the assumption. And some do teach that. This is what Dwight Pentecost teaches on Daniel 2 that we looked at earlier. Um, he talks about uh, amillennialists, and I think postmillennials are in this camp. And then he says, premillennialists, however, hold that the kingdom to be established by Christ on earth is yet future. Now, let, let me stop you right there. That's not entirely true. Um, there are many premillennialists who believe that Jesus established his kingdom. So this, at this point, I'm not talking about the difference between premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists. That doesn't even enter into the picture. I'm just talking about the kingdom that has come. But some do hold that it's future. But here's the argument that he gives, and he gives six, but I'll just give you the first one. He says, the stone will become a mountain suddenly, not gradually. Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth in the first century. So he's saying, obviously, this kingdom wasn't established in the first century because it didn't fill the whole earth. It didn't happen suddenly. Now, here's our two options. Is it going to happen gradually or is it going to happen suddenly? How shall we decide? Well, we could flip a coin. <laughs> no, we're not going to flip a coin. We compare Scripture with Scripture. What did Jesus say? about the kingdom. Matthew 13. Matthew 13:31. He put another parable before them saying, "The kingdom of heaven is like." Okay, he's giving us a picture of the kingdom of heaven in a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Mustard seed is very small seed. It's like a tiny speck of dust. He says the kingdom of God is like that, like a tiny speck of dust that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in the branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And there are others. But notice what he's saying. It's like a tiny seed. You plant it in the ground and over time it grows and it grows 
and it grows until it finally becomes a large tree and the birds of the air come and make its nest in the branches, which sounds just like Daniel's too and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that covered the whole earth. That takes time. And, and this is significant because the disciples in the first century also assumed that the coming of the kingdom was going to be immediately. They assumed that when the reign of God came and it was now coming in Jesus, they assumed Jesus is going to Jerusalem. You know what He's going to do when He goes to Jerusalem? He's going to destroy the Romans. He's going to take His seat upon the throne and He's going to rule the world. That's what they thought was going to happen. They thought the kingdom was going to come suddenly. So Jesus tells many parables, not just to describe the kingdom, but also to help them with their misunderstanding of the kingdom. So this parable is told for the first century disciples and He's telling them, and with this parable, it's going to come slowly, guys. It's not going to come all at once. So you better prepare yourselves and you better be patient. And you know what's funny? Here we are 2,000 years later and many of us still think that when the kingdom of God comes, it, it's going to land like some kind of bomb and it's going to be set up just like that overnight. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what He told his disciples. Now, related to this, people also say, you know what? The kingdom's a mess. This, this is what I've said to people. Think about it from this perspective. In, in the first century, how big was the kingdom of God? Well, in Acts 1, what was it? 120 people? 0.0001%. But how, how big was the kingdom of God time of Constantine or A.D. 500. And, and then following the Reformation, right before the Reformation, right after the Reformation, about the 1500s or so, how big was, was the kingdom? And then move ahead today. How, how big is the kingdom today? And with a historical perspective, as you look back, what, what does the kingdom, what does that mustard seed look like today? We know in the first century it looked like a seed, but what, what does it look like today? And, and we think it's so bad. You know, you should see America. It's going down the hill. It's so hard to be a Christian in America. Imagine if the Apostle Paul, God worked a miracle. Right now, the Apostle Paul walked into this sanctuary. And we said to the Apostle, we're so glad you're here. Boy, you don't know how hard it is to be a Christian in the 21st century. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly what he would do. He would laugh. He would say, are you kidding me? You should have seen what the kingdom was like in the first century. If you declared in the first century Jesus Christ is Lord, you were thrown, thrown to the lions. You, you think Obama is not, is not a friendly president to Christianity. Try being a Christian under Nero. Do you know what Nero did to the children of many Christians? Threw them into the arena so that the lions could devour them. It's hard to be a Christian in America. We need to get a little historical perspective. But nevertheless, let me hear the arguments. People will say, yes, many people claim to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. They're nominal Christians at best. In fact, there are many false Christians. And I would say, you know what? You have a point. I don't deny that. Jesus also addressed that. Matthew 13, 
24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven. So remember, he's still talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then is it that we have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. If you don't know what the interpretation is, he makes it very clear in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And I'll let you read on from there. But it's very clear. Jesus said the kingdom's going to be a mixed bag because we have an enemy and they're going to be wheat and they're going to be tares together. So when people say the church is a mess, I say, yeah. The church is a mess. The kingdom of God is a mess. And, I, and I'm not surprised by that because Jesus basically said, if I can use the vernacular of our day, He said it's going to be a mess. But you need to be careful about judging between the wheat and the tares. I'll sort that out in due time. So that, that's not an argument against the kingdom. Jesus said it's going to be like that. It's going to be slow and it's, and it's going to be a mess. Prepare yourself because you have an enemy. By the way, one of the reasons why I think the kingdom is a mess is because of the gospel we've been preaching. If we were to preach the whole gospel that the king has come and this king has laid down his life for you and now you need to declare that he is Lord and you need to swear allegiance to this king, then you'll be forgiven. You can enter into the kingdom and you can become one of his subjects. If we would preach that gospel rather than you know, if you ask Jesus into your heart, He'll forgive you of your sin. And we don't say this, but sometimes it's implied. And you can live however you want. Sometimes, even worse, the implication is, if you turn to Jesus, He'll forgive you and He'll bless you. He'll make your wallet so fat it won't, fat it won't even fit in your pocket. Turn to Jesus, He'll forgive you and your life will be wonderful. And then what happens when times do get tough? I didn't sign up for this. Seriously. But the gospel is Jesus is the King. You need to confess that He's Lord. The knees need to bow. And we need to serve Him with our lives. And we need to serve Him with our lives even if it costs us our lives. Because He is worthy of everything. And if we were to preach that gospel, maybe people would think twice. I can still remember one of the first theological debates I ever entered into as a Christian was whether you could accept Jesus as Savior without Lord. If we understood the gospel, we wouldn't even have that false dichotomy. It's ridiculous. The King, the Lord, is the Savior. You, you can't divide Him. 
Lordship salvation. I can't believe that's even a debate. I can't believe John MacArthur even has to write a book helping Christians understand the debate. Of course he is Lord. Of course we need to confess that he is Lord. And if we don't, we need to question whether or not we're Christians, which is another way of saying subjects of the king. So I think this gospel has immense practical application. And then just one more real quick. Our time's going. But people will say, the kingdom is not of this earth. And I think they misunderstand what Jesus says in John 18 when he's standing before Pilate. In John 18:33, we read, So Pilate entered the headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Did you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is not saying, my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is from heaven. And he's saying, if my servants were of this world, they would fight. The kingdom of God isn't like that. When Peter took out his sword, when Jesus was arrested and cut off the ear of Malchus, he said, put it away. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. The kingdom of God does not advance by fighting enemies with physical weapons. And this is a great transition to next week's message. But the kingdom of God advances. Not by us taking the lives of others. That's Islam, friends. The kingdom of God advances as we go forth proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is King, willing to suffer and die. This is how the kingdom goes forth. This is how Jesus brought in the kingdom. He suffered and He laid down His life. When He died, He was establishing the kingdom. When He died, He was defeating His greatest enemy, Satan. And we are to follow in His footsteps. We don't, we don't fight. We love. And we lay down our lives. And as we do that, the kingdom of God grows and the kingdom of God spreads. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ who brought in the kingdom. Father, thank You that He laid down His life for us and gave us an example that we should follow in His footsteps. Father, may we faithfully proclaim the Gospel that He proclaimed. And Father, may people see our love. And Father, may we give our lives to the Kingdom. After all, we are commanded to seek first Your Kingdom and Your Righteousness. And Father, as our Lord taught us to pray, we pray even now, may Your kingdom come and may Your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Amen.